Uh, We'll continue on in Acts chapter 7, uh, reading for you today and presenting before you today, hopefully, a sermon on verses 44 through 50. Hear now the word of the Lord. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Faith comes from hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us now to be the recipients of this word. Help us not to assume upon ourselves that we are just the proclaimers, speaking out to others that have a problem with belief, who have a problem with faithfulness. But may it be that you would open our hearts to receive these words, that we would be convicted of our sin in place where we doubt you, where we shape places and things to worship by our own hands. And may it be that we would have a hope that you are dwelling with us, that you love us so much that you sent your son Emmanuel to be with us. May we be encouraged today by your word, and may we respond in faithfulness and thanksgiving. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are coming to the close of Stephen's sermon to the scribes, to the high priest, uh, to those there that were questioning him accusing him that he was speaking and acting that the disciples, like Jesus, were speaking against the customs of Moses, speaking against the temple. And as Stephen is wrapping up his sermon before he does his application directly toward them, he is ending with the temple, which is a good place and an encouraging place considering that the book of Acts is about the Acts of the Apostles, but mainly Acts of the Holy Spirit among the Apostles and the early disciples, the early church. It's really a book that's about the new temple of God. So he is finishing his sermon by talking about what the tent of witness was and what the temple was and reminding them Ultimately, the trajectory of where God has been going, directed by his own words and by his own hands, directing the people on how to be postured and to perceive his dwelling place. Taking a moment, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about um, a couple weeks ago, um, Knox and I were working in Philadelphia, and it was interesting to me when I'm thinking about dwelling places, when I'm thinking about buildings and structures, uh, we went into Philadelphia one night after work and we uh, decided to hit the Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell and uh, the Philadelphia Museum of Art and where the Rocky statue is. And, and I remember thinking that as we were standing outside, it was about seven o'clock at night and there were still a good number of people coming from all over the world to still see Independence Hall. And it was an empty building um, and it's no longer a government building. Um, but it's considered to be probably the iconic place to go for Philadelphia. Independence Hall is a representation of the foundations of this nation. And I remember going there with Abigail first and how we were inside. We got to do a tour. And I, 
I remember standing a little bit closer to the left side of the building because it was in that side of the building where many meetings were held in the formation of the Declaration of Independence and then the Constitution, a lot of debate and discussion about the liberty that the bell behind us was representing. Uh, the Liberty Bell is in a museum right behind, across from uh, Independence Hall, since it's no longer um, in the bell tower of the building. And I was thinking, here we are looking at this building, and I remember a discussion that, or a um, tour guide talk when Abigail and I were in there. And I remember, I don't know if you remember this, Abigail, but the tour guide indicated that our rights derived from the government. And I, it was like, whoa, <laughs> what was that? And he went on about, and I was like, well, it's not an uncommon thing to hear taught today. It's a false thing. And I was thinking, here we are in a centerpiece of our nation, a, a symbol of the things that we hold to. And it's a building and a structure that is celebrated. But even here now, the truth is absent. That one who is officially wearing the uniform of he's the... He's the guy, he's the park service guy that is there to teach us and to show us what these things represent. He gets a very key component, very, very wrong. And I was thinking, you know, that's a, a lot like um, structures today of worship. Even thinking about Micah's prayer this morning during our prayer time that the men in the pulpits, that they would be preaching truly the word. You know, we're not here to, to celebrate Independence Hall, but I thought it was interesting just how important it is for us as human beings to connect ourselves to buildings and places that represent values, history. We're very connected to it. I'm sure that if I just started going over there and bashing out the windows, some people would get mad. Unfortunately, in this day, some people may actually join me um, in the desecration of that particular building. And, but I thought if, if we did do something like that, and even Knox was joking about something about jumping over the fence, he was just being silly. And I said, well, you notice there's a police officer there in the, in the shadows. I don't think he would get very far. He would, he would stop us if we were going to be silly and jump over that particular fence. And I thought about today's sermon. I was thought, here we have the scribes, the high priest. They're hearing something about the temple being preached by Jesus, and they crucified him, and he rose again from the grave. And then his disciples are going around, and they're saying stuff, and they're, they're hearing things, and they're, they're, they're piecing it together better than you might think they are because we have a tendency to kind of think that the Pharisees and the scribes and the high priests were just a bumbling idiots. No, they, they understood the word of God probably much better than the modern church today. And so when they heard these words talking about this temple and talking about the destruction of this temple, they had a tremendous fervor to protect this structure that represented something more than anything else that could be built on the earth at that time. The question I have for you guys today is, can you outdo the Pharisees? Can you outdo the scribes and the high priests in that fervor? We tend to look at this particular passage and we think, man, they don't get it. They've got it all confused. They're all wrong in what they're doing. But what Jesus tells us in the Sermon of the Mount, he says, you've got to do better than the scribes and the Pharisees in what they are seeking to achieve. Your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. They had a tremendous honor for the temple and a protection of the temple. If we go into this sermon thinking we're just going to go away from that particular fervor because we think that fervor is stupid, Jesus is not saying go away in the other direction from that fervor. He's saying that your righteousness needs to exceed it. And that's not typically a posture that I go to when I consider this particular passage. 
I kind of want to fast forward and say, well, we have Jesus. We, we're not going to be like the Pharisees. But the other way about it is we have Jesus. Therefore, we can exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. We have the righteousness of Christ. How can we as his people today show forth a greater fervor for the temple of God? Now, we all know that the temple of God is no longer in Israel. And what we have here is we have Stephen making a case that historically God's dwelling place resided in different ways. He goes back to the tent of meeting. Because that is a place that God had directed Moses to be a place of not only the residing of God's glory, but a representation of of God's glory being with his people and a representation of what is to come. And then we have the temple, as he mentions with David and Solomon. But then he makes it very clear here that God is not constrained to these earthly structures. They never were the final place and the final thing that God wanted us to hold to. He wasn't just trying to put the scribes and the high priests in their place. He was wanting to appeal to the very things that they were arguing about, to the very fervor that they had. He doesn't go into immense detail about all of the things concerning the tent of meeting and the temple because he knew they knew those things. I encourage you this week to read Hebrews 9 because it's a, it's a kind of hashing out. It's putting more mean, meat on the bones of what Stephen is saying here for us and how Christ is the centerpiece of that. He didn't have to go. Even the writer of Hebrews says, I'm not even going to go into all the details about the temple. I can't, I can't put time toward that right now, and nor can I. And nor did Stephen at that time because those particular hearers understood the immense detail that went into proclaiming and building and practicing worship in the temple. They knew that. And they had a reason to respond to what Stephen was saying. They had, a, in a sense, a reasonable response to be offended That Stephen and Jesus and the other disciples were talking about the end of that particular age in that temple. I'm not saying it was the right place to stand, but it was a reasonable place to stand based upon what they understood. And as we look at the church today, do we respond reasonably to what God has directed and shaped for the church today? Do we even compare to that kind of zeal? For the glory of God. So as we look at this particular passage, again, put yourself in the position of these scribes and high priests. And that would be actually probably a compliment for us as a church today. As so many people have abandoned the zeal of the glory of God. Abandoned his ways of what he said he is going to do to dwell with his people The reminder of the tent of meeting in the temple is a reminder of God's ways of doing things. He directs the progression of his presence. Multiple times we see in this passage that Stephen is saying this is something from God. He directed Moses to make it in verse 44. It says that he even told... David and Solomon, that he does not dwell in houses made by hands. He says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? It sounds like the same questions, questions he was giving Job. How can, you, how can you even invent in your own mind any kind of way of how I would dwell with you. I am doing these things. I have chosen to do it the way that I have decided to do. Did not my hand make all these things? 
We could not invent the concept, nor should we ever invent the concept of how God is going to dwell with his people. From the very beginning, God has set forth the terms of how he would be with his people. And then we can tell based upon the context of what is going on in this situation, the context of the particular sermon, the context of the whole environment as they are proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ, the righteous one that we see there in verse 54, that all of this was for the purposes of pointing the scribes and the Pharisees on how to look at the tent of meeting, how to look at the temple, how it all points to Jesus Christ. But not just how it points to Jesus Christ as the high priest for our sins, but how it points to now, considering the whole context of Acts, how the Holy Spirit, the great glory of God, is now dwelling amongst his people. The final place, the final residing place, the body of Jesus Christ has always been the goal of how he would dwell with his people. Again, it's easy to look at this sermon at one glance and think, man, Stephen is really harsh toward the scribes and the Pharisees. Next week's sermon is going to begin with you stick-necked people, stick-necked people. But as you consider this passage and meditate upon this passage this week, I want to encourage you to see that this is a tremendous grace, a tremendous mercy that Stephen was given in the proclamation of truth because he was essentially telling them, God is not dwelling there any longer. This place must must be destroyed. It wasn't out of resentment and bitterness toward the scribes and the Pharisees that Stephen is preaching to them this way. It is a provocation to go to the truth to find the dwelling of Jesus Christ. So first of all, let us remember what God has said in his word about who he is. We've already been hearing a lot of it in a way in these questions through Job, but in Jeremiah 23, verse 23, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God afar away? Then later in 24, do do I not fill the heaven and the earth? Psalm 145, verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. The first thing we see there in Jeremiah is that God is near at hand. He is at hand, but he's also far away. This is one of the places where we get our doctrine of his omnipresence. He is everywhere. He is not contained to a particular place. But then we see in Psalm 145 that he is near to those who call upon him. This is a grace in Psalm 145 that God is not far away from those who seek refuge in him. This has always been the posture of God and always been the desire of God from the very beginning. Even in the garden, he sought to walk with Adam and Eve and to dwell with them. And then his continual path from that point on is to restore not just that intimacy, but a greater intimacy with this people. As the young men have been going through the study of the covenants, that has always been a theme of every covenant that these particular scribes and Pharisees are supposedly fighting for in these particular covenants that now Stephen is reminding them of is that God desires to be with those who seek refuge in him. Then in Exodus verse 30, um, chapter 40, verse 34, it says, when talking about the tent of meeting, that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then their response to that is that this mobile place of worship, that they would not move unless the Lord was in it, as it would represent the presence of God by a cloud, it says that they did not set out 
till the day that it was taken up, meaning that when the cloud would reside over them, they would move. They did not want to leave without the presence of God. They longed for the presence of God. They were beginning to get it through these teaching tools of the tent of meeting and the, tap, and the, and the temple of the wonder of the fact that God would want to dwell with his people. I want to take a moment and just think about what was going on in the tent of meeting that Stephen is talking about here. One of the things that we have in the tent of meeting is the law of God. We have the Ark of the Covenant. And it was the centerpiece, the representation of the character and the presence of God. And so we have inside of that a declaration of his holiness, his righteousness, his goodness, and namely, as Jesus Christ summarizes himself, the love of God in the center place, the highlight place of the tent of meeting is the word of God, the commandments. Often as we grow up, we think of these commandments of, of, of being things that oppress us or limit us, but they were not shown to be limitations but proclamations of his love. And then interesting, just like you would have in any kind of tent or house, God set forth a beautiful table. A table. A representative piece of furniture that is probably the highest highest sense of intimacy apart from the marriage bed itself. A place of communion. He put in the place that would represent his presence with them a table. Yesterday, I was called from uh, called by a friend of mine that I was hoping would be here today, and I haven't seen him in a while. And the last time I saw him, he was kind of going in a different direction, and he invited me to go out to eat, and he enticed me by taking me out to eat to Indian food. And so it was, it was a hard thing to, to say no to, but I wasn't really sure where we were at. I, wasn't, I was kind of prayerfully thinking, I don't know, I think we're in a place of peace, but I, I kind of feel like that maybe, maybe not. You know, I don't know what kind of life he's been living. I don't know if there's something dividing us. So I was a little uncomfortable with the idea of sitting down with him. But I prayed about it, and I thought, no, we can, we can do this. It seems like he is, he is longing. He, you know, the words that are coming from his mouth are seemingly honorable before the Lord, and I don't have enough calls to say, no, I'm not, I'm not sure if we should break bread together. Well, that's not an uncommon discomfort. That shouldn't be an uncommon discomfort, because historically that's where people are. People don't normally sit down with people and have a meal with them when they are enemies with one another. I think it's in the art of war. It talks about how that's an insulting thing for two enemies to sit down together at a table because it's not a culturally acceptable thing. If you're invited to sit down, that is at least showing that there's a moment, a temporary moment where there is peace amongst even the potential of adversaries, for God to put forth a table in the tent of meeting was showing that he wanted not to be in a place of severance. He wanted to be in a place of intimacy. And he put forth, he provided the instructions of what kind of bread to put there. Thinking about that time in that particular culture, there was a lot of pagan worship. And there were places of worship that was not unusual to have something like the Tent of Meeting. If you go to certain museums, you can see things that are very similar to the temple, very similar to the Tent of Meeting. And you will often sometimes even see a table in there. But the interesting thing is, is that through most pagan worship, people will make the bread and they will put it before them so that the God, the deity that they are worshiping, will eat that particular bread, that it's an offering to them to eat. But what does God do with the bread and tell us to do with the bread? He gives it to the priest. He gives it to Aaron and to the Levites to eat. That's a big deal because these are servants of the temple. We might think of a priest 
of being something that is you know, close to being God, but they were in a servant place for the worship of God. And God is saying, you eat it. My servants get to eat the bread. Because I am providing you the bread. I am actually giving you sustenance. It's always been in Jewish history that this bread was a representation of God's provision for them. But it's even further than that. It's a representation of his salvation in him feeding us the bread of life. This is a very intimate place of God with his people. With a lampstand. Wouldn't we have a light if you were going to have a tent? I know that when I go camping, I like to have a light so that I can see the creepy crawlies that are in the dark. I've got all kinds of bugs that are coming. It draws the bugs also, but at least I can see them for a moment. Or if I hear something rustling around, I can see if it's my dog or if it's a coyote. You need to have light, and God puts a lampstand there. And as we see in John, that Jesus is that light in that darkness. God giving a light to his people. And then we have the incense, which was a representation that we even see in Revelation that are the prayers of the people. There is conversation amongst the people, the, create, the creatures, with the creator. There's a good reason for the scribes and the high priests to be upset about any kind of bad talk about the temple because it was the highlight in their mind of where God resided with his people. Now because of their sin and because of the hardness of their heart and because of their own idolatry, they manipulated that thinking in their proclamation of that thinking before the people and they did not see that God had moved on from that trajectory of movement that he had of how he was dwelling with his people, that he had actually fulfilled it in Jesus Christ. Quoting there in Isaiah, says, Thus says the Lord, Isaiah 66 is the passage that Stephen quotes. It says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But, and this is not something that Stephen quoted here that we can see at least recorded. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and in contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Stephen was going through the work of presenting the Old Testament to them so that they would be humble enough to hear the proclamation of God's word set forth before them in Jesus Christ. That if it was the dwelling of God that they desired, they needed to listen to what he had to say because he was proclaiming Jesus Christ. He was actually proclaiming the hope that they were zealous for at least in proclamation. As I studied for this sermon, I, I wished that the scribes and the priests at that time would have had 1 Peter chapter 2. But we have to remember that 1 Peter chapter 2 was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was clearly there because we see here in verse 55, that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit when he proclaimed this message. And so if God had chosen for them to understand the sermon that Stephen was preaching, he could have done it at that moment through that proclamation of the word without 1 Peter chapter 2. But brothers and sisters, you and I have 1 Peter chapter 2. And so I proclaim it for you today in an encouragement as you consider that question, does your zeal for the presence of God exceed that of the Pharisees? Do you long to be with God? Are you desperate to be amongst the fellowship of Jesus Christ? 
The Pharisees and the scribes at that time, unfortunately, I believe because of their pride, everything that we can see from the proclamation of Jesus throughout the Gospels and the proclamation of the apostles throughout the epistles is that the Pharisees and the scribes and the high priest could not see it, namely because of their pride and their lack of desperation of understanding the entry door of the Gospel was his repentance. They could not see past their need. They could not see their need, so therefore they could not see past what was being said that Jesus was the answer to what their zeal was supposedly about. They were not in that place as the psalm mentioned there where they were humble and contrite of spirit. And so therefore I think that we have the tendency and the possibility that we too could have that same weakness by not truly having that desperate need for Jesus. Therefore we miss out on what God has directed and what God has declared to be the place where he resides. But Peter tells us, and he tells us this in an interesting way, the fulfillment of what God has been doing and what God has done. And he starts with, with an admonition toward the people. He starts with saying, you stiff-necked people, in a way. And then saying instead of, so he's kind of like almost taking the baton from where Stephen was, but then he ends with hope, which is where I want to end with today. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, it says, So put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. I think about that. That was very much where the scribes and the high priests were. They had tremendous malice, so much that when they would hear these words being preached by Stephen, that they grinded their teeth. They had tremendous bitterness and malice in their tongue and in their heart. And then in their tongue, there was all deceit because they brought forth all these false witnesses and shaped their testimony in a way to make them look guilty of something that they were not, just as they did Jesus. With being with tremendous hypocrisy, as we see here, and envy, envying really Jesus Christ, envying the power of the great high priest that... They did not see their roles. These high priests did not see their roles so much as servants, but as positions of tremendous personal authority. They were much like the disciples in the gospel reading today, fighting over and longing who was going to be sitting next to Jesus Christ, not as a place of gratitude and servitude, but at a place of position and pride they had tremendous envy and therefore they were living in all slander we too as a church still thinking about that prayer that micah prayed this morning we don't want to hear the word of god people get very upset and it's amazing how people get upset when preachers just simply Preach the word. They don't want to hear it. They, they do like the scribes and high priests here do. They, they want to put their hands over their ears and, and they want to scream loud. They do not want to hear it. And in many times there's much deceit about what kind of pastors these are in the pulpit who actually do proclaim the truth. There's much envy They want people to draw the attention to their own personal preference of how to worship God. But Peter tells us, like newborn infants, we are to long for the pure spiritual milk, that you may grow up in salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The first question for us is going to be, do you even know this goodness of this Lord that we have? You know, here we are talking about our righteousness exceeding that of the Pharisees. Do you even have a clue what Jesus has done for us, who Jesus is? Do you even have an inclination of what wondrous love he's had for his people? Let us go back to the temple and look that God from the very beginning wanted us to be 
in his presence. He wanted to dwell among us. And if you've tasted that, and if you have seen that, then we should long to have his word preached to us. We should long to be fed with both admonition and encouragement. Not just encouragement to our own temple building, to our own kingdom making. Not that at all, actually. But to be admonished of that, and to be drawn to conviction and repentance of that, and then had a hopefulness that we do get to reside with the Lord. But then here's where I'm going in verse 4 of 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, once you've tasted him, once you've understood the goodness of what Jesus has done, and as he draws you to you, draws you to him by the Holy Spirit, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, rejected by the Pharisees and the scribes and the high priest in the gospel, rejected by the scribes and the high priest here before Stephen, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor... Is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders, the scribes and the Pharisees rejected, has become the cornerstone. This one that they are rejecting, he is the cornerstone of the temple. But he's also a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Why? Because they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you not see that all of this zeal that they had but could not see fully is greater than most of our zeal when we come here today to be amongst God's people. And we are told that our righteousness needs to exceed that. Am I willing to fight for the holiness and the glory of God dwelling amongst this people? It's sport today to talk bad about the church. Without qualification, we feel confident today that we can speak poorly about the bride, the bride of Jesus Christ. If any of you spoke about my wife badly, I would be very upset. But we take sport in talking bad about the church. Now, granted, you're saying, weren't you kind of doing that when you say modern Christianity? Aren't you talking about the church? Yes, I'm not saying that we can't criticize our brothers and sisters. I'm saying we take this posture so much that we despise the sins of the people in the church. We have now despised the church. We've despised the things that God has set forth and directed to be about the church. Go back to the tent of meeting, the Ark of the Covenant. The word of God. We're not just despising the sins of those committed by those in the church. We are now picking apart like, like Thomas Jefferson in the Independence Hall. Reshaping God's word. Take this out. Put this in. We're just like that in how we shape our theology. More people know some kind of soundbite from social media about God not being 
this or God being this or God's love is this or God wouldn't do this because of His love. They know those things more than they know God's Word. They are despising the dwelling place of God. The Word should be the centerpiece of the dwelling place of God. The Word should be the centerpiece of your own heart and motivation in life. That's what we're called to cherish. The Word of God is synonymous in His own Word to Jesus Christ. When we despise His bride, when we despise His Word, we despise Jesus Christ. The table. Paul had the same problem in Corinth. People would look at the table just as a place to feed themselves. I preached a few Sundays ago about the sin that we have when we just come here kind of in our own little individual world thinking about it's just me and Jesus. When Paul makes it very clear in Corinthians, do not come to this table unless you are discerning the body. If you come to this table despising the bride of Christ, if you come to this table being content to have not just Division amongst yourselves, but being content to not being convicted that you're not serving yourselves, meaning serving each other as you should, then we are told we could be in danger. Because God has so uplifted his new dwelling place, he wants us to go considering that dwelling place in our hearts and how we are to serve humbly, very much like the high priest of that day, to be very humble in our servitude to each other, so much that before he instituted the table, before his disciples, he washed their feet. He washed the place that was considered to be the vile area of their person as a servant does in showing I am the servant you be the servant to each other. Are we seeking to have the light of the lampstand shining forth our path? Or do we spend more of our time letting our minds being consumed by the darkness of the world? Are we more involved in listening to the music and watching the movies and participating in conversation, not just in hearing conversation that is godless, but also speaking in conversation that is godless? Do we actually spend more of our time amongst entertainments and amusement that is absent of the light of God? Do you have conversation that shines a light upon the people's paths? Do you get convicted when you are overwhelmed by lyrics or content in movie that is just so opposed and absent of that light that all you have by the end of that is dark. Knox and I went through a movie that he was, he and I both have, we both need to deal with some of our issues with movies. And we went through the scriptures and we were looking for things that were pure and true. And we were rating the, the movie I was trying to prove a point to Knox about a particular movie that he wanted to see. And, and at the end, I think we both landed at a good place that it didn't match very well what God tells us to dwell upon. And then he went to work out one night this past week. And um, I thought, well, I'm going to watch a movie that I wanted to watch that I don't think Jennifer's going to like. And so I, I put it in and I started watching it. And it was very intriguing. And then all of a sudden it kind of hit me. Man, it ain't nothing but dark. There's nothing but dark in this room. Everything that I was admonishing my son about, there is nothing that is true, pure, and good. Just a murderous mess. With a little bit of an intriguing question in the middle of it. Barely a glimmer of light in it. I just had to turn it off. I was convicted by the word. But I realized how easy my appetite is to want to eat darkness. How my appetite is to be entertained by dwelling in a room of darkness. God put forth the lampstand to shine forth the light and gave us Jesus Christ to shine forth that light on our path. Do we long to be in the presence of God? Are we willing to have our appetites and our desires for darkness to be confronted 
by the word of God in the communication of brothers and sisters saying, you watch that? You know, first thing we do when somebody says, you know, if somebody says, you actually let your kids watch that? We get offended. Like we have liberty. <laughs> liberty, liberty, liberty. We have liberty. We can do whatever we please. You can't judge me for that. And lastly, brothers and sisters, they have the place of incense there in the temple. And I'll come here again. I know that you guys pray. I know that you guys pray for me. I know that you guys pray for one another. But when we go to Acts chapter 2, and when the Holy Spirit has been set forth amongst the church, the response of the presence of the glory of God is that they prayed together. It defined the foundations of the early church was that they were devoted to the word of God. They were devoted to the table and the participation of the table. They were devoted to helping one another and they were devoted to prayer. Do you not see? Go to the ends of chapter 2 of Acts. It is a representation of the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting is now the people of God. The activity hasn't changed. The activity of what God likes to do when he has his people around him hasn't changed. It's just that now it's amongst all of those who take refuge in him and for all of those who believe in him. Do you long to be with God? Do you long and are you desperate to see him move? You may say, well, it's people. Sinful people. I know these people. They're not so good. That's not the point. God is there. God directed it. Do you think that those stones that the temple were made were not full of dirt and death? Surely some of the stuff that they mixed the mortar with had decay in it. Those are temporal things. Our body is temporal to be resurrected, but the spirit that resides in us is eternal. And so God tells us to, in Hebrews, the same place where he highlights that Jesus is the centerpiece of the temple in the tent of meeting. He says, do not neglect to go be with each other. That is where I am residing. He does not say that my name is Emmanuel. God is with you. He says, I am Emmanuel. God is with us. I'm not saying that you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but that personal relationship with Jesus Christ is for the purposes of building up. You are living stones being built. You're not just a stone out in the parking lot. You are a part of the new temple of Jesus Christ. We have this table. God gave us a table. Jesus, before he goes to the cross, establishes a table. I don't know if y'all notice I skipped that in the tent of meeting. He put a table. And instead of us bringing bread to him, he says, I am the bread. Eat. I am the vine. Drink. My body has been given to you. My blood has been poured out for you. He turns the world upside down every way that the world worships their false gods. He says, I love you all so much where you all are bringing your bread made by your own hands and putting them before these false gods as if they need to be fed by you, I am pouring out myself on this table of presence to tell you that I want to be with you. So much that I sent my only son to die. So that you can be in this place. So that I can dwell amongst you. So I can dwell amongst 
Bodies that have committed adultery. Bodies that have had thoughts that are impure and malice and full of bitterness. Inside of bodies that have also in them greed and arrogance and division and envy. All of those things that we listed in our confession of sin today. The only way that that can happen is in the hope of Jesus Christ. Just as he temporarily dwelled amongst the tent of meeting in the temple, amongst people who were sinners so much that, as David read, that the priest had to present sacrifices of sin even for themselves. It was always resting in the fact that Jesus will renew his people. But according to Acts, he is now with his people. He has given us this table Let us go to it with humility. Try to have, pray to God that our righteousness would exceed that of the scribes and the high priest, that we would long and cherish this table, that we would long and cherish each other, the place where God resides, that you would cherish the neighbor beside you, not because he's just great or she's just attractive, but because God resides there. And that the things that he has told us to do are the things that we should defend and fight for. But come with thanksgiving. Come with repentance and faith. He directed this by his own hands and word. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this sermon that Stephen has preached. Help us to hear it. Help us to respond not like the scribes and the high priest. Help us to respond with like those who heard Peter's sermon earlier about the same thing with what do we do now? And may we respond with the things he told us with repentance and faith, trust in the promises of God and dwell among his people. Because among his people is where you reside. Help us to believe these things. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Now let us stand and let us thank God for all the provision that he has given.